it's your boy, and welcome to episode 83 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast available now. You can find it at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. Just look for the latest episode. You can either watch the video on our website or click through to YouTube and subscribe. Whoo! Happy Sunday, everybody. Um, we're really flying by the seat of our pants today. I almost, I feel like I've been saying this more and more. Um, this is probably as close to true as it has been, but I almost didn't do an episode today. <laughs> I, I sort of fantasized about just posting a little audio clip saying, Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. There's no podcast. We'll see you next week. We're taking a week off. Uh, only because I've been, <sighs> you know, it's weird. I feel like I've been busy a lot over the last couple of years just with school and work. But for some reason, it's not even finals. It's not really even midterms. But the planets have just aligned in the last two weeks. I've probably been, it feels like it's been some of the most stressful time I've had in school. There's just a lot, uh, a lot to be juggled. And... Um, had to facilitate some training for work today, which was actually really enjoyable, but it just meant carving out a big chunk of time, uh, on a day that I normally do, uh, some homework. And then just now I did about three and a half hours worth of math homework doing, you know, calculus is just fucking, it's so crazy. It sounds like the easiest thing in the world to say, but it really does. Like when you are sitting across from some math, like calculus, where you just think, when the fuck am I ever going to use this? Uh, if I felt like it was applicable, I'd probably be more disposed to learning it, but really, it just, I really, really, really hope it's the last math class I ever have to take. And the weirdest part, too, is as a, you know, as a student of psychology, most people I speak to didn't have to take calculus, which makes me wonder if I actually do have to take it. I mean, when I, when I reflect on my time, you know, going to a community slash junior college, whatever term you prefer, for the last couple of years, they've kind of fucked me up. I took a whole semester of chemistry I didn't have to take, which is insane. I took a biology class I didn't have to take. And they even enrolled me in a wrong, the wrong psych class, which I had to apply for um, a substitution so that I could meet the requirements. So what the fuck? You know, and I tried to petition to them and talk to them and say, hey, what the fuck's going on? And they just have no answers for me. Tell me that's not the way of the world. The buck doesn't really stop. You know, ultimately they just go, hey, you're responsible for knowing that you're taking the right classes. And I go, yeah, but then what the fuck are you here for? You know, it's like paying a CPA to take your, to, to do your taxes for you. And then they make a mistake, a mistake. And they're just like, hey man, you're responsible for making sure I do my job right. And it's like, then what the fuck are you here for? I can't micromanage everything you're doing. I'm paying you to take over a task that I don't either, I either don't want to or don't feel uh, competent enough to do. In my case, it's I, I don't really want to. Actually, I've started to hear back from schools, and everything's good so far. Uh, I did get waitlisted for one school, but um, the only thing, the only reason that matters, is because I don't know anything about it. When you apply to the UC system, it's just very easy to like check a box and just apply to more schools. It's not free, uh, but it's also not exorbitantly expensive. So if you can afford to do it, it's just you know spread yourself out. But it is weird. I, I got waitlisted for one institution, and I was like, I don't know anything about them. So we'll see. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, the training I had to facilitate today was actually uh, probably my favorite class that I get to facilitate for the, the trainees at the organization I work at. It's really a class where we just explore our attitudes about death and dying. Well, we watched this video. You can probably find it on YouTube. There is a person named BJ Miller, who's a triple, amp triple amputee, um, who was the former director of Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. Um, I think they're still active in some capacity. They used to have a house, a building, some real estate, I think in the Mission in San Francisco. Uh, I think now they just operate exclusively out of like UCSF or something like that. Uh, the hospital there, I believe. I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, 
they they don't really exist in the capacity that they used to. But when BJ Miller and I think BJ Miller is actually at a hospital in the East Bay now, uh, working in hospice. But um, at the time that this TED talk was filmed that he did, uh, he was working for Zen Hospice Project. And uh, BJ Miller is just kind of an interesting dude. He's a triple triple amputee. Uh, and actually, I, I don't, I mean, I'll tell you his story a little bit, but uh, if you want to watch more about him, the video I think is called What Really Matters at the End of Life. And, uh, or you could probably just Google BJ Miller TED Talk. Um, but he just talks about his experience working in hospice. Um, he tells a little bit about his experience being an amputee. I guess he and his friends were kind of mucking around when they were kids and climbed on top of a, I think it was a, a parked train car or something with power lines overhead. And I think at one point he just like reached up and grabbed them and just, you know, electrocuted himself. And, uh, you know, however that happens, just uh, lost, uh, um, one of his arms and both of his legs to that accident. And he uses that kind of as a jumping off point, describing the, the experience of patients in the hospital and really just how hospitals are really disease centered. They do a lot of things very, very well. Um, but that comes at a cost too. They are disease centered. They are not people centered or person centered, which is a phrase you, you hear thrown around a lot, but it just means that, um, they're hyper-focused on treating, diagnosing and treating diseases, um, and don't really pay a lot of mind to the whole person. Sometimes that's their belief systems. Some, uh, sometimes it's just, and, and really what he emphasizes in this conversation is just the aesthetic sense. You know, he makes an interesting observation that, uh, you know, in the spirit of sterility, right, or for the purpose of sterility, but hospitals are anesthetic, literally like anti-aesthetic. Um, people come in, die, they get wheeled out, and it's like nothing ever happened. And just the idea that there's, you know, these are sort of an assault on the senses, <laughs> which uh, can impact our experience in hospitals and maybe even our capacity, Um to get better, but he brings up this interesting story. He tells a story about a woman, uh, I believe, who's dying from, um, <laughs> I almost said ASL, ALS. That's because your boy's taking American Sign Language and thinking ASL, but ALS. And um, I think in the last stages of her life, one thing that she really wanted to do was start smoking again, which was something she had quit a long time ago. And it just brought up an interesting thing that I think about every time we take this class, and inevitably it's a conversation that we have um, with the trainees, but this idea that at the end of our life, our priorities our priorities change at the end of life. And sometimes the things that were most important to us get displaced by just um, a sensual gratification, instantaneous uh, sensory satisfaction. I said sensual. I think that, that I think that always means sexual, but uh, instantaneous sensorial. <laughs> well, actually, I think that actually means to censor. Anyway, you know what the fuck I'm trying to say. Instantaneous um, gratification of the senses. How about that? And that could be smoking cigarettes. It could be eating certain types of foods. Um. And why is that coming up for me? I don't know. It's interesting. We ask ourselves that question, like, you know, if all if this all ended tomorrow, what would I wish I had done more of? And sometimes, I mean, I think it can also be a convenient excuse for just trying to get yourself out of doing something that just in this moment is not very pleasurable. But I want to, you know, I want to perform well in school. I mean, especially in my first two years here, I, I really, really, really want to get straight A's. That's just something I'd like to have for myself. I think it would be fulfilling. I think it would be, what's the word, self-actualizing or something. I was such a shitty student for so long, and I know I'm a smart person, but that was never, uh, at least in my adult life, I was a great student when I was younger, Um that was just never really demonstrated by my schoolwork. And I know it's like, hey, well, so-and-so flunked out of school and they went on to be successful. Um, seeing as I, I I don't know what areas of my life I, I'm going to be successful in, at least for right now, 
Uh, look, if my uh, music career was high flying or my creative career was high flying, I wouldn't give a shit about my grades. But since this is what I'm looking at in the present, I want my grades to reflect a, a certain level of success. Obviously, it gives you more opportunities to attend other schools. Um, and that's all good. But really, it's I'm, it's really what I'm after is just the, the short sighted or the immediate. Uh, you know, it'll make me feel good. That's really the only thing I think about. Getting straight A's would be nice to look at. But to weave it back into what I'm talking about, um, there is a part of me that thinks, you know, the things I do interstitially that I sort of weave into those when I'm like doing hours of schoolwork and when I take a break, um, I've, I've said this on other episodes recently, but I'm, I've been listening a lot to Bela Bartok. Um, I've been playing a video game called Cuphead, which is very challenging. Um, and playing chess, that's something I've always done. I play these sort of five-minute um, speed games. Um, those are the things I really enjoy doing. And uh, maybe part of why I enjoy them so much is because they're sandwiched in between hard work. I, I mean, I think if my entire day was just wall-to-wall Bartok and Cuphead and chess, I think I'd probably enjoy them a lot less. The same same way if you had pizza for every meal, it just you'd get sick of it after a while, but if you have it once a month, it's pretty fucking great. Um, I don't know. I guess I just think at the end of my life, what will I wish I had done more of? It certainly won't be calculus homework. And I know that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but maybe I'm just trying to uh, connect some dots between <laughs> what's going on in my life and uh, and trying to fill up some time, I suppose, here on the podcast. I mean, I'm, as I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to prevent myself from going back and just going into the greatest hits here where I talk about uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich and, um, you, know, you know, I feel like that's come up, uh, come up a few times on the podcast. So I'm trying to think of other things to say besides that. Actually, I was sitting across from my girlfriend and uh, I guess this would qualify as a meta commentary on the podcast that people don't want to hear all the time. But um, yeah, I guess I've just kind of reflected on as we're nearing the end here, do I want to continue this? And when I think about it, and I haven't, I, I have not listened to a podcast episode in a long time. I'm just kind of going, uh, I'm, go, I'm going on, I'm going off of how I feel when I actually do them. And I think lately they've been, you know, relatively easy. They were fairly challenging for a while there. I would say from about the early 50s to maybe early 70s or so. Um, and not that they've all been perfect since then. They just have felt a little bit easier than they have had at other times. But as we're coming up on 100, uh, on 100 episodes, and I just think about um, where we're at, you know, I'm not quite sure if I feel like I've made the progress that I I think I had hoped that I would make in terms of my ability to be an engaging speaker. I mean, if you listen to this podcast regularly, um, I assume that there's enough of something that you enjoy. Um, but, you know, the, the, the audience is consistent. People listen, but, uh, you know, it's not really growing. And, you know, I'm just sort of talking through my life, and it's sort of an audio journal for me, and I'm talking about things that are, are going on with me uh, from day to day. But... Maybe it's because I was looking at podcasts like the Chris Leo podcast, which, but now that it's back, is fucking hilarious to me. And I'm sorry if if uh, you have problems with him as a person, and I, I I have some problems with him as a person also. But you know, it's a just a genuinely entertaining podcast for me. He's like really really funny, and uh, even the Brett Easton uh, Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which honestly I haven't gone back to, uh, to listen to in a long time. But uh, I just. I don't know. I, I, I guess I thought that by now I would have had a stronger sense that I was really like developing a voice or coming into my own or feeling a certain level of confidence. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm definitely not going to keep moving forward. I just think it means as I, you know, over the next couple months, because uh, I think, I mean, the anniversary of this podcast will be around 
mid-September um, when we'll reach 100 episodes. I think I just really need, if I am going to move forward, I just think I need to really think about what the podcast is going to look like. Um, I think I am have <laughs> decided that I probably can't keep doing it alone. Um, I think to keep doing it in an engaging way, I think I would have to have guests. I think uh, doing a stream of consciousness podcast for an hour is pretty, I think it's a tall order for most people. Um, and so I think either I have to dedicate more time to planning what I'm going to talk about and in a vacuum or apropos of nothing, I'd be happy to do that. But I'm also, you know, the whole reason I wanted to do this was I wanted to use what I had and I wanted to just get going and I wanted to start moving in a direction. And as I mean, if the last couple of weeks are any indication, you know, I have a lot of other things that need my attention and carving out a lot of time to prepare for each episode. It's not really in the cards. So in some ways I go back to this conversation that I've had or this train of thinking that I, I, I have said at other times on the podcast, which is, um, you know, when you do something creative and you ask for people's attention, you kind of need to deliver something meaningful. And I know that sounds like an obvious point to make, but especially in a time where people are absolutely overwhelmed and inundated with content, you know, you're competing with so much, you know, what is really here for, you know, what do I really have going on here that would be engaging for someone who uh, doesn't know me, didn't connect with me through my music? You know, what is the average listener what what do I offer here that the average listener would get? Um, you know, I probably speak a little bit better than the average person. I've also had a lot of practice at it, obviously. But, um, you know, for some reason I'm thinking, of, and you're not going to relate to this a lot, but you'll probably think of something similar that you um, can equate for yourself. But there's this YouTube channel I was watching for a while, which was this very old guy who was really an expert on firearms. And, uh, I like him because, you know, I, I've said it, I have my criticisms of gun culture and as someone who, um, you know, is getting into shooting, um, you know, you look for information online, like a lot of us do. If you're shopping for a motorcycle or a vehicle or a pressure cooker, <laughs> you go, a lot of times you go on YouTube and you look for reviews of gear or, or that, you know, that's part of our information gathering process now. And so you're exposed to a lot of firearms channels and most of it is fucking garbage. You know, it's a bunch of like backwoods people who are terrified that the second Amendment's going to be encroached on and uh, they're Trumpers and, and all that sort of stuff. And not that this person, I'm sure they are conservative to some degree, but they just uh, they have a lifelong experience with firearms. Um, you know, they're, they kind of speak toward, you know, what aesthetically I'm drawn to with firearms, more old style uh, revolvers, single action revolvers. And, uh, they're not into like the tactical shit, you know, the, the sort of, uh, macho man, uh, firearm wielding shit that people are into where, you know, they need a scope and a flashlight on their, um, compact carry firearm that they want to wear in their, uh, in the crotch of their pants every day and carry around everywhere they go. Uh, that's not really what I'm into at all. And this person just, uh, you know, the person is clearly an expert. You know, they can speak with so much ease. Um, you just feel it. You know, it's, you know, in other areas of my life, I think we, we feel this with politics, with social issues. You know, a lot of people just stand on a soapbox and start speaking. And we can actually feel in our gut that they are speaking either at or even a little bit past the cusp of their understanding. And usually it's because they speak in rhetoric. You know, everything they say sounds so scripted. There's no real emotional weight behind it. It's just a rhetoric. Um, whereas when someone is speaking from actual experience, you know, they speak with a certain level of confidence. They don't really care if you agree with them or not. This is their uh, finely tuned opinion born out of their own experience. And they're sort of giving it to you for free and you can either take it or leave it. They don't really care. Whereas people who are not so sure of their position speak hoping to convince you. Because in some ways, convincing you makes them feel more confident in their own position. Um, I think that's why, you know, for the objective person or, or, or the outside person, you know, even, even, 
evangelicalism, evangelicalism, evangelicals seems so um, odious because there's something so, you know, if someone really believed in the truth of this, on the one hand, I guess there, you could say if someone really believed that heaven was real and people who don't believe in, don't accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior will burn in hellfire for eternity. If they really, you know, wanted to save people from that, I guess maybe they would be evangelical. Um, but there's something, I don't know if pathological is the word, but there's something for people who feel the need to, excuse me, just repeat their position over and over again. Um, we just get the sense that, um, it's not real for them unless it's real for other people. And, um, I don't know, it just feels a bit thirsty, doesn't it? I mean, I'm thinking of one person in particular who I am connected with on social media. And and this is really largely my uh, response to social media in general these days. Um, you know, they just post about how great their life is and all the insights they're having and all the transformative work they've been doing on themselves for the last year. And it's like, (laughs) when you see someone post that kind of stuff, you're convinced that they cry themselves to sleep every night. Because people who are genuinely happy don't feel the need to articulate it in great detail on social media. You know, they just are happy. Um, their happiness does. And I, and I think if they're really happy, they don't need other people to acknowledge it or validate it. It's just real for them. You know, whereas when somebody's boasting about all the progress they've done and all the self growth and self work that they've done and how they've learned how the, the, the pandemic has taught them patience and yada, 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 whatever the fuck you just think, I don't know. It just feels desperate. Doesn't it? That's my response anyway. I mean, I haven't posted anything to, you know, my personal Facebook in, I don't even know. Maybe since I went on tour a couple of years ago. Although, honestly, I may need to post something soon. I'm doing this uh, for my site class. I'm doing these qualitative interviews for, um, you know, I have this enduring hypothesis, which I'm sure it's true, or I think the literature that already exists kind of... Um, supports this, but you know, we have all these different types of research uh, projects for this class. We have to do a research proposal. We have to do qualitative interviews around a topic. And so it's very easy to just kind of do very variants or variations on, on one topic. It's just much easier for yourself. And so my enduring thesis has been that there's a correlation between life crisis and religious conversion. And, uh, you know, the psych teacher I have is just, a, it's like a parade of terribles with this, with this dude. But of course, four days before the assignment is due, he announces that, um, you know, the original assignment that we receive is that we're supposed to do a qualitative interview where we have to do a 30 minute interview with someone, ask them, we have to develop our own interview protocol. Um, and of course there's a whole like formatted, like essay aspect of it too, but we have to like transcribe this interview and format in, in a certain way. And, and, Obviously, it's very, very time-consuming. Uh, four days before the assignments due, he tells us we need to I, we we need to do two interviews. So we, he's essentially doubled the size of the project four days before it's due. And I mean, of course, there's an there's an outcry from the students in the class. So he's prolonged it. But uh, I do need to, I've already completed one interview, and uh, I need to find one other person. So I was walking with my girlfriend yesterday and talking about this. And uh, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me sooner, but I said, you know what? I think I'm going to have to post something to Facebook and like ask my social network if there's anybody who, you know, identifies as a religious convert who'd be willing to participate um, in this project. And I was just expressing a lot of regret at that. You know, it's almost like I was treating my lack of Facebook activity as like, almost like my sobriety, <laughs> like in AA, you know, you get your chips, like you've gone three or six months without posting to social media. And, uh, the fact that that number has to drop back down to zero, it's a little disappointing. I wish I wouldn't have to.
But it must be done. I mean, it's either that or I just sort of make one up, and that's not going to fly, right? My academic integrity does not allow for that. I feel pretty good this week, actually. I feel like I, there was moments where I was kind of being a Debbie Downer on the last episode. As stressful as things have been, I think it's been nice that I'm getting things done and that I'm succeeding at the things in front of me. Um, you know, even shitty stuff like getting your car fixed or dealing with car insurance, you know, these things are a big fucking drag. And, um, none of those things really have the power to derail me. You know, I mean, I know they're not end of the world stuff and, you know, we all deal with harder things than that in our lives, but it really can kind of just derail me. And, uh, you know, school is stressful, work is stressful and, uh, you know, there are stressors just even in my everyday life in general. And so I just, I don't feel like I've had a lot of time to just kind of like chill out. So I think I'm going to take some time off in the summer. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I'll take some time off and have a little vacation when I'm able to. Um, but I've been, I guess I've not having a car has been nice. I'm walking around more. So when I go to my girlfriend, she's about like a 30 minute walk away from me. That's been nice. Getting that that added physical exercise, still doing the exercises I've been doing, so I feel healthier. I feel generally better overall, and also getting out in in the sun more. I guess getting more vitamin D sort of helps my mood. I guess the one thing I don't feel like I can get enough of is sleep. You know, I really don't sleep well during the week. You know, it's already pretty late here on a Sunday. Um, as much as I want to, I bet I probably won't go to bed till like two thirty three in the morning. And, uh, I got to be up at like eight thirty for class and, uh, I get through the day fine. It's not like I'm tired throughout the day, but it, it's like, no matter how little sleep I get, I'm up pretty late the net, the next night too. I mean, I probably average like five or six, I would say five, five to seven hours a night. And if you're young, that sounds like, uh, I sound like Rip Van Winkle, but when you're in your mid thirties or older, that's not enough. I mean, it's embarrassing for me as I get older, I realize how much sleep I need. You know, on the weekends I can get like 10, 11 hours of sleep and I still feel exhausted. Even talking about it, I'm yawning. Oh, it's also crazy too. My girlfriend and I, we've been watching a shit ton of Jeopardy. In fact, if you're on Netflix, go ahead and scroll through what they have right now. Uh, I can't vouch for if you're listening to this at another time. But if you listen to this shortly after it comes out, go on Netflix and see what kind of Jeopardy they have. We've watched <laughs> all of them. We've watched all of the Jeopardy on Netflix. And we love it. When we were coming to the end, I was saying to my girlfriend, uh, I don't know how it came up, but she expressed like genuine uh, remorse at coming to the end of it. And I noticed, I said, you know, that's the first time I ever heard you. It sounded like you were really sad for that show to end. She was like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So we've been trying to find stuff on YouTube to kind of get that fix. But you can't really find it. It's kind of hard. But we love that show. But the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, at the end of the day now, we spend, on the weekend, we probably spend like three or four hours just like watching Jeopardy or watching a, a show. Um, like I think yesterday we watched, you know, and the episodes are an hour, but we started watching the show, The I think it's called The Great Pottery Throwdown on HBO. If you don't know it, imagine Great British Baking Show, but pottery. It's the exact same show. They they took the format, they took the exact same format in terms of the challenges, in terms of how they evaluate things. It's the exact same show, but now it's about pinching pots and throwing clay or whatever the fuck it's called. Um, and the reason it's cool is it's kind of like I was talking about the show Forged in Fire, which is like uh, it has to be an American show. Because it's all about aesthetics. They don't really get in. I mean, you absorb some of the craft of what forge, forging metalwork or forging weaponry is just by the virtue of the fact that you're seeing it. But you don't really get into the details. It's that show, Forge and Fire, is way more interested in aesthetic and like the visual component. Whereas when you look at Great British Baking Show or this Great Pottery Throwdown, 
you really learn a shit ton about the craft. Not that you can just pick it up and start doing it the next day, but it's just, there's something intrinsically engaging about watching people do something uh, that they're passionate about and not just, you know, not just edit over it with music and like, you know, try to, I don't know, like you, you're trying to give people what you think they want rather than just what's engaging, which is just the stuff itself. Um, so anyway, what am I saying? I don't know. We started watching Great uh, Great Pottery Throwdown. We watched an hour of that. And then uh, we were looking for something else to watch. And I've gushed about... Oh, excuse me. I've gushed about this movie on the podcast before. Um, and of course, they just put it on Netflix because of the success of The Queen's Gambit. But the movie is Searching for Bobby Fischer. And uh, I've been wanting to watch this with my girlfriend uh, for a long time. And... Uh, we watched it last night, and I tell you, every I, I don't know, I, I had to have watched that movie semi recently, but every time I watch it, I just um, I don't know. I'm so one, I'm so impressed by it. I mean, the movie came out in like the early '90s, maybe like '93, and it's a very '90s movie, but it's so beautifully shot. And uh, you know, I've said this on other episodes, but you know, it may be the first. Excuse me. It may be the first movie ever made that that treats chess very seriously. Um, There are other films where chess is a topic, but you know, filmmakers, in a way, kind of like Forge and Fire, you really get the sense that I don't know. They almost treat the subject as something to be avoided. You know, they really try to focus on the drama, um, and that's there for searching for Bobby Fischer. But it really leans into the chess. It, It sort of challenges itself to show you that chess in and of itself is actually interesting. It's not just a vehicle for the plot. Um, chess itself and the world of chess is actually pretty uh, engaging. You just have to treat it seriously and show it for what it really is. Um, but it's such a beautiful movie. And, of course, you know, I'm always... Uh, I feel very vulnerable watching it because um, I see very clearly how formative the movie was for me, not just in terms of turning me on to chess, which it did. I think it turned a whole generation of of, uh, of kids at that time in the early '90s onto chess. Um, but more than that, I've said you know the the film really is about a young chess prodigy um, whose dad, once he realizes his son, uh, you know, is exceptional at the sport, really hinges some of his own self worth on his son's success. And of course, he tells himself that he's supporting his son and he's doing it for him. But because of this boy's talent, you realize that most of the adults in his life are hinging some part of their own self-worth on his success. His uh, his chess teacher is a sort of, you know, failure to fly kind of uh, uh, promising chess player themselves who never really succeeded, um, you know, who sees their life's work now as being the teacher or the, you know, the um, this person as their protege, Right. Um, the father, you know, takes a lot of pride when he goes to the chess competitions, his son is the best. And when he, you know, is standing across from other parents, he gets to brag about his son's success, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the center of this, you have the young boy who's very, very talented. There's no doubt about that, but he's also a very good person. And he's obviously this is, this is a movie. Um, but you know, there's also the, uh, the villain, uh, young boy, you know, who's just kind of snarky and, uh, you know, the exact opposite of what you want from talent. What is it? The infant terrible, right? The young prodigy who's a fucking asshole, probably like maybe who uh, Mozart was. Um, but you know, they're good and they know it and they know they're better than they, they wave it in everybody's, everybody's face. And they take that sort of, I mean, there's a beautiful scene where, um, uh, the young boy's teacher, uh, played by Ben Kingsley, tells him, you know, you have to hold your components in contempt. You have to have contempt for them. You have to hate them because they hate you. And hating your opponent is a big part of the game. And there's many people who would agree with that. I mean, Bobby Fischer, of course, was one of those people. He, I mean, in the film, they say very dramatically, he he held the world in contempt, which may be true. Um, but the young boy, Josh Waitzkin, is the character's name, played by Ma- Max Pomerantz, Pomerank or something like that. Um, 
you know, he says, I don't hate them. You know, he wants to be a good person. And the only person advocating for him is his mother, who wants to kind of protect him from the world he's being thrown into. And it's just such a beautiful movie that really shows the ways in which parents hurt their children by trying to do what they think is best for them, uh, rather than just letting their kids be kids. And the movie has so many found moments that aren't even scripted. You can just tell that the in the filming of this movie, they found all these nice moments of all these kids at a chess tournament and they're running around and they're being kids. And they have one kid who's like climbing around on the monkey bars. And one girl at one point is like bouncing a ball and like knocks over the chess uh, trophies or whatever. And uh, none of this stuff is scripted. You know, they just put it in the movie because it shows that these are children. And uh, but the people who are really acting like children are the parents, you know, so much of their own self-worth and their self-value hinges on their children's success. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids and a lot of childhoods get crushed under that stuff. You know, I mean, the honey boo-boos of the world are, uh, an obvious example of that show parents, right? I mean, there's actually, um, what is the name of it? Shia LaBeouf's movie, honey, honey, something, honey bee, honey do, honey something, um, it's a, it's a really great movie. It's Shia LaBeouf's film that he may have direct, certainly wrote, stars in, uh, may have directed, uh, about his childhood with his father. Um, and, uh, I mean, the crazy thing too, is when you look at people like Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, I think even Ariana Grande, you know, we, you know, we see them as adults. And when these people are uh, shown to us as like teen idols or, or pop stars or whatever, you know, we don't realize and we don't see that these people were combed for success from the time that they could walk and talk. I mean, they, a lot of these people had show parents who took them, uh, from, you know, out to LA for pilot season and stayed in motels and took them out on auditions and they were on the Mickey Mouse Club and all that sort of stuff. And they've been in show business their entire life. And this is the only thing that they've ever tried to succeed at. And lo and behold, um, they are. But it's not... What I'm saying is it's not just a merit meritocracy. You know, it's like these people were looking for, you know, they're like athletes in football. They're trying to get the ball down the field. And look, if they had seen some daylight or saw a lane open in music, they would have taken that. Or if a lane opened in um, television, they would have done that as an actor. If a lane opens in uh, whatever the fuck it is, they would have gone down whatever road led them the closest they could to being, a, a, you know, successful at something. Um, and where am I going with that? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just have no doubt that, that behind most of those people are horror show parents. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've said on other episodes, I think, you know, not that this is the case for everybody. I want to say maybe most, but I, I don't, really can't quantify it. I'm just speculating here, but I think to be success, I think for many people who are successful in, in the creative field, they are actually broken or injured or traumatized uh, in a very specific way. And, um, you know, I think we see that in a lot of the, the most successful people, especially pop stars for some reason. You know, not to say that the world that they sort of are successful in is just sort of crazy in and of itself. Um, yeah, who is the person who said it? There was a black comedian who was talking about Martin Lawrence just sort of going, I, probably Dave Chappelle, actually, when he went to Africa. And he said, uh, he was also just reflecting on other black celebrities who had, you know, that the media had portrayed like as like losing their mind. He was certainly one of them. I think Martin Lawrence had this story that a lot of people don't remember, and I don't even remember the details, but he was like in an intersection in Los Angeles, like yelling and screaming, maybe even brandishing a gun. I don't know. Um, but Dave Chappelle points out that the industry that we're a part of that is fucking nuts. You know, is it more likely that everybody who's in it is crazy or is the environment so fucking wild and, um, you know, devilish that it makes people crazy? There's been this, and I don't, I don't really follow it that much, but there's been a big turnaround that we've had against like female celebrities from like the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, Britney Spears, uh, uh, Paris Hilton, you know, there's sort of an apology tour that's happening for all the media people that made fun of them or made them out to be vapid or shallow. I'm not fucking on board with all of that, 
you know, there's this big apology tour that, oh, Paris Hilton wasn't vapid. <laughs> and like, which she was, if you were living around that time and you saw her celebrity presence, uh, uh, she was not, I don't know, nothing to write home about, nothing to uh, aspire to. Um, so anyway, I don't know, I don't know why I'm going down that road. I guess what I was really thinking about is like Britney Spears like shaving her head and like uh um I think she was like beating a, a a paparazzi's car with an umbrella or something like that. Um but these are people who are pushed to the brink by a, just a, a crazy industry. Right? And how we ended up there, I don't know. As I'm sitting here, I'm actually remembering I had a coworker of mine who made some artwork for me that I told myself I was going to show you. Um, but now that we've started the episode, I can't, uh, I don't know. I don't see myself getting up to get it. So uh, I'll have to show it to you another time. But I would say this is the second time that I've uh, I've uh, sort of patronized a fellow coworker who's an artist to commission some art from them. It's actually pretty disappointing to realize how many fucking talented people there are in the world. I think especially when you're young and your world is small, or maybe I should just speak for myself, but when I was young and my world was small, I put a lot of value on my talent. And, well, I am going to open it up. I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, uh, those of us who can sing, those of us who may be able to write songs, um, the truth is talent is nearly ubiquitous. I think the the, the truth is, is that everybody's talented at something. Not everybody has the chance to tap into it. And people were probably could excel at things if only they were exposed to it or had the means to pursue it or whatever it is. I mean, I've said this before. All of the people I know, and the more I learn about more people, the more um, the, the truer and truer this is becoming. Nearly, with very few exceptions, nearly every single person I know who has continued to pursue a creative career well into their adult life has come from sufficient privilege. There are very few people who have nothing to fall back on, and despite falling on hard times or not being successful past a certain point, who continue to pursue uh, a creative career, um, who do not come from uh, privilege. And I think a lot of that is because at the end of the day, people can, one, they can afford to continue to pursue it because they may have some nest egg that they sit on, but they also know that if it really, if push comes to shove and it really doesn't work out, you know, there's always something to fall back on. They can turn to their families or whatever the fuck it is. Um, why did I bring that up? I don't know. Talent. Um, I work alongside a lot of talented people, a lot of talented artists. And, um, I guess, I I guess, uh, I'm not trying to sound critical here, but um, I, I realized that one of my coworkers was making this very specific type of art and you don't need to know what it is. You will see it on another episode. I'll show it to you next week. But, um, I said, wow, that's really beautiful. Like, would you take a commission? And she was like, sure. What would you like? And it's basically these sort of ceramic, um, that's not the right, it's, it's not the word for it. It's like Paul, um, polymer ceramic something. I don't know what it's called. Um, but the piece that I saw of hers had like a skeleton. And I said, oh, there's something, I really like that skeleton. And there was a lot of bright colors that were associated with it too. And I was just saying, well, you know, I'm really into the I Ching, you know, uh, maybe you could do something with this skeleton that you've done and also something with like either a yin yang or, you know, the first hexagram of the I Ching is the creative. And she was asking me some questions like, well, what does that mean to you? And I was like, well, it means a lot of things, but excuse me, it's kind of the wellspring excuse me, of creative thought. You know, the creative for me represents the, the kind of the the ephemeral wellspring of creative thought. And um, and she was like, okay. And so she ended up sending me uh, not only some of the finished stuff, but even the prototypes that she made. And where am I going with this? Um, oh, yeah, I said, so what would that be worth to you? And this is a conversation I have many times, you know, um, I think because it's a conversation I've had to have, like as someone who, you know, was paid to do musical or music related things. Um, you know, it's not something I was always good at, but you become kind of conversant and kind of develop a vocabulary around how you value your own time. Um, 
And it's just interesting, not necessarily a criticism, it's just interesting when you're uh, on the other side of that and you know that you're engaging with someone who hasn't had that conversation a lot. And uh, I see it with uh, artists a lot. You know, you'll say, hey, what is that worth to you? And they give you some figure that is so low. And um, I feel good about it because it gives me a chance to appear um, benevolent or beneficent or maybe both. I don't know. But uh, I just throw a much larger figure at them and they think I'm being super generous. And I guess it is, right? I mean, the part of capitalism or whatever is somebody throws you a number. If it's much lower than what you wanted to pay, that's a steal, right? You'd be an idiot not to take it. But I think because it's an art, you know, artist to artist, not that I, I don't mean to sound patronizing, but there's a part of me that tries to use it as an opportunity to show people that they potentially could be undervaluing their time. And just so I don't sound like I'm a jerk, I'll tell you about a time where I did the same thing. I was approached by somebody who was, you know, relatively successful uh, internet personality who um, makes music and did some video podcasting or whatever. And, uh, you know, editing video takes a shit ton of time. And this person was asking me if I'd be interested in taking over the editing aspect of their videos. And I said, absolutely. And they said, what would that be worth to you? And I was being very honest, which I thought was good. I said, you know what? I'm not quite sure. Why don't we do the first one? I'll tabulate the amount of time it takes me. And then for the next one, we'll kind of know what it takes and I'll have a price for you. And they were like, (laughs) okay. And at the time I thought, great. And did the video, put a shit ton of time into the first draft. They had some feedback. I went and made those changes. And by the end of it, I had dedicated a shit ton of time to this video. And by rights, you know, they're not obligated to do anything. They accepted the work for what I off, what I um, uh, priced them at, which was nothing, which is totally fucking fair. That's not my point. But the point is, is that it never happened again. You know, actually, here's what I think happened. Actually, <laughs> and maybe this undermine that might undermine the point I'm trying to make. Or maybe it doesn't. Who knows? Basically, I think, honestly, the next time they came back to me and said, hey, so what's your time worth? I told them what I really wanted, and it was way too high. Um, I'm wondering if I should shy away from specifics, but I basically said I want $1,000 an episode. Now, when I look at the reality of the market and what editing video costs for people, that is way too fucking high. It makes perfect sense. I think they just walked away and never responded at that point, or may have followed up and said, hey, I'm trying to figure some things out. Um, I know two things. They didn't take me up on my offer, but I also think they did not engage anyone's services for that, um, um, for that task in the future either. So I think they just decided it was not something that they wanted to do. But, uh, I'm talking about how we evaluate our time. Uh, if you're a pro at this, this may sound like uh, fucking nothing to you. I can just say that for me, it was a lesson that, um, especially in the arts, we really undervalue our time. And I'm not, there's a lot of cliches that happen when people talk around this topic. You know, people talk, the easiest way you hear this mentioned most is people say like promotion is not payment. Like it is true that as an artist, you get approached by a lot of people who say, hey, will you come play our benefit? Or will you come play this fair? Or will you play this? Um, I was gonna say food market. What What's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, they go and they sell fruit. You know, what's that, what's that shit called? (laughs) All the farmers come together. Farmer's market. Uh, Farmer's market. Of course. Will you play our farmer's market? And, uh, a lot of times, uh, not very reputable organizations will say, Hey, you know, we can't afford to pay you, but Hey, it's great exposure. Right. So that's a criticism that you hear a lot. And you hear a lot of artists sort of advocate for that on social media. Hey, exposure is not payment, et cetera, et cetera. I would beg to differ in some instances. Um, there are plenty of ways, there's certain exposure that you you absolutely should do for free. But yes, in general, playing a farmer's market, you need to be compensated for your time. But here's what I didn't really realize. Um, as I thought about it, when you actually crunch the numbers and you decide what you really need to um, to accomplish two things. One, to pay your bills but also to, f- to actually feel satisfied, that's usually a, a, a number that is much higher than what you feel comfortable asking for. And so I can't say it's true for all situations, but I think eight times out of 10, 
when someone asks you what your time is worth, if you're not asking for a number that actually kind of scares you, you know, then you're probably not asking for enough. Because if somebody really wants you, there's going to be a negotiation. I mean, you may decide for yourself at some point that there is no negotiation. You know, like when you go to a therapist, uh, unless someone works on sliding scale, but for some reason I'm thinking of a therapist. Um, When you go see a therapist and they say, what do you charge? They say, I charge X an hour. Let's say, I'm trying to think of a reasonable median amount. You know, there are people who work in maybe a social justice capacity where there's a more sliding scale. They work for subsidized agencies or they work for the county or something like that. But I bet your average private practice person, and I'm trying not to just equate it to the Bay Area, but you're going to spend over $100 for a quality therapist for sure. Now, if you're in LA and you're a celebrity, you could probably find people that charge like $400 an hour. But I bet you're probably going to spend about $120 and, and by the way, not just an hour, for 50 minutes, five zero minutes for a therapist. Um, that's what someone has evaluated their time at. And for the most part, you're not going to be able to talk them out of that. It's even a it's actually kind of a, when you, when you think about it that way, and this, I guess this is how I thought about it. Once you kind of understand or have thought through yourself, like what your time is worth, and when somebody asks you, I mean, whether they're wording it this way or not, they're basically asking you, what is your time worth? And when you throw a number at them, it's almost kind of rude to negotiate it. Or at the very least, you're, it's a, it begins to become a very precarious conversation. And I've had this. You know, there's been opportunities where, well, I would say for anything, let's just consider the video editing thing. For me to continue doing that job, that's what I wanted. Would I have taken slightly less? Sure. I probably still would have felt satisfied. But if I had taken like half as much or even a quarter as much, I wouldn't have felt satisfied. I would probably come to resent that job. And so what am I saying? I'm, I guess I'm trying to say that you should get paid what you're worth. I don't know. That doesn't really sound like a profound point to be making. But I guess the counterpoint to that, too, is there have been times where I've been asked, what is your time worth? And I've known exactly what that number by rates should be and that that person has the capacity to pay it. But because of the power dynamic, they're able to negotiate me down because they also know, as much as we say exposure is not payment, um, or, uh, you know, I guess the example I always think of is Amanda Palmer, who was criticized for going on tour and in every, every city she stopped at, she asked for fans to, you know, I think she like recorded a record with like a horn section or something like that. And she couldn't afford or didn't want to pay to have touring musicians travel around and play for her. So in every city that she stopped in, she solicited the services of local fans who played these instruments to learn the music and come play the show. There was a huge backlash because this was flying in the face of a very popular opinion at the time amongst musicians, namely that exposure was not payment and that artists deserve to get paid. Um, and while I agree with that, um, you know, people can decide for themselves what is uh, sufficient compensation. If you're a fan of Amanda Palmer, it may be enough just to be on stage with them. Like, that is payment enough. Wow, what a cool opportunity, you know? Um, objectively, yeah, maybe you, quote, deserve to get paid, but maybe you're fulfilled. If you walk away from that situation feeling completely satisfied because getting on stage with one of your favorite artists and playing their music is sufficient um, payment, that's totally fine. If you genuinely feel uh, abused, um then that makes sense. I would also say then don't volunteer for the gig. Let it go to somebody else. Um, And just because I'm following my train of thought here, you know, there have been times where someone has tried to negotiate me down from what I asked for. And a lot of times the counter argument is, well, I can find someone to do it for less. And you say, okay. I mean, if you've really reached a point where you can't go below, I mean, sometimes we start high because we know, really, if we get down to this, we'll still be satisfied. But if someone's really asking you to go below your number, 
then they can find someone else if you can afford it. If you can afford to say no, you can certainly choose to do that. And people will say, well, I could find someone to do it for free. And it's like, oh, yeah, you can find 100 people who would do it for free. But you're asking me to do it. And this is what I cost. So if you want to have someone do it for free, go ahead and do that. If you want me to do it, if you're coming to me because you believe I have a special uh, skill or talent that I can bring to this project, specifically, it's going to cost you X amount of dollars. And I feel like there was still some larger point I was getting to that I I, I can't remember. (sighs) I mean, how did we go from searching for Bobby Fischer to talking about Amanda Palmer? I feel like I definitely finished... I feel like I didn't finish any thoughts. Talk about stream of consciousness. This is the no point... This is the no point podcast. We've arrived at no points... Oh man, and as I'm sitting here, I'm realizing I was supposed to FaceTime our um, podcast MVP, Matt Evans, and I didn't do that. God damn it. So Matt, if you're listening to this, I'll, I'll FaceTime you soon. It's too late now. It's 11 o'clock on Sunday. This podcast will be live uh, shortly. So what am I going to do with the rest of my night? After this podcast, I got to upload it. I got to upload the video. I got it kind of down to, a, I was going to say a science. Not quite a science, but I certainly it's certainly a routine I'm able to walk through pretty easily. I think I'll listen to some more Bela Bartok. I recommended that you check out the Rhapsodies and maybe compare them to the Violin Sonatas. But uh, today I spent some time just kind of looking at the first Rhapsody for violin and piano and just kind of looking at the form. It's actually very interesting, the first movement. Anyway, I'm looking at the first movement right now. It's actually pretty interesting. I believe it's a ternary form. Um, Yeah, but interesting measure lengths. Bartok's interesting because he really draws on, like, you know, Romanian, Hungarian uh, folk tunes, and their melodies are, you know, compared to Western music, are kind of asymmetrical. It's like three, it's not just four, you know, we have measures of four, systems of four, you know, melodies are usually, you know, uh, often eight, four to eight measures. Um, you know, there's like a question and answer. There's like a question and eight measures and an answer and eight measures. So a phrase, you know, uh, if that's the word, can be like 16 measures. 16 measures is like a natural uh, sequence in Western music where, and uh, for a complete idea, and now it's on to the next idea. Um, very different with Bartok. He uses some of that stuff, but then when you get into the B section, sometimes it gets very strange very quickly. He'll begin to sort of pace things around. You know, I'm looking at the end of the first movement of the Rhapsody, and it's like, we're back in the A, it's really A prime, because it's much like the A section, but the uh, the the harmonic content under the melody is completely different. We're in a different key altogether, but also the harmonic information under the melody is completely different. And at the very end, when we should be getting to the end of the A section, he weaves in this sort of figure from the B section to sort of end the first movement. It's very interesting. Anyway, I'm sort of nerding out on you because I'm trying to kill time. And also I'm looking at the time that we're at. We're probably just knocking on the door of an hour. Um, you know, we always lose a little bit of time on the podcast because i got to sort of drop this in between our two audio in and out. Um, and I always try to sort of kill time to sort of make sure we get over the hour. So anyway, I'm not going to give a shit. We're just going to end now. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. Hopefully people are doing that. We've had some pretty shitty reviews in the past, and so I just have stopped reading them. So if you're writing shitty reviews, fuck off and die. If you're writing good reviews, thank you. Um, but take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. Um, think of someone in your life who would like the podcast and send them your favorite episode. Also, the video podcast is out now. You could be watching it at this very moment. But if you're not, go ahead and find it at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can watch the video 
on the website there or click through to our YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Um, and yeah, that's it. Uh, we will be back next week. I'll, I'll show you some art that my coworker made for me. Um, and I'll organize some thoughts for us as well. But until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.